all the businesses in crypto are tied primarily to trading and speculation of crypto rather than any productive use cases. So there are some businesses that generate real cash flow, and those are the ones that I focus on. But even those largely generate revenue from other crypto businesses. So until crypto has more ties to real world productive use cases and has more dollar generation tied to real world activity, it will continue to have this highly internally reflexive nature. As crypto trading goes up, there's more revenue in the system. As crypto trading goes down, there's less revenue in the system. And that's not sustainable. It's very circular. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. And the recent crypto meltdown started with the Terra Lunar UST algorithmic stablecoin collapse that triggered a further contagion with BlockFi being insolvent and Three Arrows Capital getting margin calls with positions liquidated. This contagion is still continuing around the world and Asia as well. With me today, I have Cosmo Jiang from the core team of Global Coin Research and founder of Nova River to help me untangle what is happening within the crypto world itself. My disclosure is that I am an investor in Global Coin Research and Joyce did the intro to make this interview happen. But Cosmo, since you are the expert, welcome to the show. Hey, Bernard, thank you so much for the time. Happy to be here. Every time when we get a new guest on the show, we always want to hear their origin stories. And the first question I typically always start off with is, how did you start your career? I grew up in Cupertino, California. So in the heart of Silicon Valley, I've always been around innovation and tech. I did my undergraduate studies at Harvard, where I studied applied math. At that point, I probably didn't know much about investing, but what I did know was that I really enjoyed learning and I enjoyed surrounding myself with smart, growth-oriented people and a natural place to channel that energy is in finance. So I went through the investment banking bootcamp at Evercore, a large investment bank where I worked on major consumer finance deals. And after that, I spent some time at the private equity group in Apollo, where I really learned the basic toolkits of being an investor from fundamental value-based analysis to building relationships with management teams and identifying investable trends. And then more recently, I spent seven years at Hitchwood, which is a multi-billion dollar public equities hedge fund, where I was the managing director responsible for consumer internet investments. And those were really the most formative years of my career, managing a large public equities book, learning from really great mentors like the founder, James Crichton, and one of the partners I worked with there, Guy Barron. So given that you have worked in both hedge fund and private equity in your past life, can you talk about how that particular experience shaped you and translate into when you go into the crypto space? Yeah, absolutely. I think as I approach the crypto space, maybe it's helpful to give how I entered the space. I personally invested in tokens since early 17 and have many close friends who entered the industry around that same time. As a public equities investor focused on consumer internet stocks, which is really what I focused on at Hitchwood, I'd always been monitoring crypto. And then over the last couple of years, especially with the backdrop of COVID accelerating digital penetration across all facets of our lives, it was becoming clear that blockchain-enabled businesses were really gaining traction and could become increasingly disruptive. And my investment process is really to take very long-term views, write investment memos with three to five-year outlooks. And it just became increasingly clear that Web2 businesses I covered were going to be disrupted by Web3 companies, maybe not today, maybe not a year from now, but probably three or five years from now. Whether it's Uniswap disrupting NASDAQ or Helium disrupting AT&T or OpenSea disrupting Christie's. And additionally, building on the skills that I've built over these last few years, 
Many of the Web3 businesses are actually ones that I can underwrite using the same investor toolkit I've built in private equity and at the hedge fund, whether it's in fintech or marketplaces or creator content or, or gaming or NFTs. That's really what I carried with me as I entered crypto is that, that ability to analyze businesses from the bottoms up, think about management teams, think about long-term visions, and, and really try to get the core of like why, why should this business exist and how will it make money? So in your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? Yeah, I think the first one is probably stay positive. Um, this is important for a couple of reasons. The first is that people like working with others that make them feel good <laughs> and smiles and optimism are contagious. It doesn't cost anything to be positive and, and nice to someone. And, and the second reason you should stay positive is that there's the old investment adage, bear sounds smart, but optimists make money. Um, this is particularly relevant now when everyone's pulling out their favorite macro charts to explain why the markets are down. It's it's really easy to do that, but it's much harder to take a long-term view, put yourself out there, be optimistic that humanity over the last several thousand years has always trended in one direction, which is progress. I think the second thing probably is like really important, for, especially for younger investors, don't be afraid to ask questions. And especially does this make sense from a first principles perspective? I think a lot of people tend to nod their heads and pretend they understand something for fear of looking dumb. I try to stay humble and, and act. I will actively admit when I don't know something. Each time you ask why, you, you peel back a layer. And after asking enough times, you really get to something that should be rooted in fundamental truth. And oftentimes, if you keep asking why and keep digging, the answer is often that it does not make sense which leads to interesting insights. And a lot, of, a lot of what we're going to talk about today with UST and Luna, if someone asked why enough times, maybe they would have uncovered the truth. Yes, and I totally agree with you on that. And also, this is also a very interesting buying opportunity, at least from my point of view. But I think this, as you and I agree, we have, this is not investment advice. Please do your own research, DYOR. But I just want to have two more questions before we get into the main topic. The first one is actually, you host a podcast too, just like me. And it's called the Liquid Podcast for Global Coin Research. Can you talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess I just love learning and I love investing. And, and a big part of that learning process for me is talking to other investors about how they approach the market, how they, what their investment frameworks are like, and, and the ideas that they really like today. And so over the last six to 12 months, I've, I've probably talked to 40 or 50 different crypto funds. And I just came to the realization that there were so many interesting insights and I just felt like it made sense to share that with people. In the crypto space, it feels like there are a ton of podcasts talking about projects, talking about founders, but really a dearth of investing-focused content, with Analyze Asia obviously being one, one really good exception. And so I, I'm trying to create what is something more akin to like an Invest Like the Best by Patrick O'Shaughnessy in the tr traditional finance world, but specifically dedicated to uh, crypto investors. Mm, I like the same podcast as you do as well. But I do also know that you have, are going to start a crypto hedge fund, Nova River. I, I guess I'm under this interesting climate and also after talking to 40 to 50 hedge funds or other funds out there on crypto, what is the core strategy for the way you're thinking about building it and taking it forward? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think in, in environments like this, it, it just proves out that you there is a need for not just directionally long strategies, but long short type strategies. And so really the core of the strategy at Nova River is to do deep research, take fundamental long-term thesis driven approach to underwriting opportunities 
and building out a portfolio of liquid tokens. So I'm bringing that institutional grade, deep research process that I learned from Apollo and Hitchwood to bear on crypto markets. And it's all about really being grounded in fundamentals, thinking about the long-term trajectory of the business and the management teams that power them and ultimately build them. I think liquid tokens are particularly interesting today for a few reasons. First is that the opportunity set is growing massively. Tokens are the new form of capital formation and replacing equity or stocks for a generation of Web3 businesses. So there are now, I think, little known to many people in traditional finances, there are a lot of real businesses being built with liquidly traded tokens, something that was not true as little as one or two years ago. And then second is that structurally, fundamental-based liquid token investing is just not popular today and orders of magnitude less competitive than venture capital. Historically, most of the institutional capital in this space has been either VC or market-neutral liquid strategies or macro strategies that just track industry beta and not really much doing fundamental-based liquid token investing. It's probably on the order of, for, for size magnitude, I think this year there's been $15 billion of VC capital raised for crypto. And I think only a few hundred million for liquid strategies, even though the liquid markets are much bigger. So it's like 20 times less capital chasing a much larger opportunity. And so that's why I think building a real fundamental based, deep research driven liquid token long short strategy is really attractive today. It's, it's interesting you say that because I started from... In Web 2, I started as an angel investor and then ended up trading stocks. And then in Web 3, I did the other way around. I started trading tokens since 2014 with that first Bitcoin of mine and then subsequently got up to 100k. And what I did was actually invested them as an angel into Web 3 startups in this period of time. And I, and I think a lot about when I did the AXS at $2 and the Solanas at $2 and then it gradually became 200 And the way I've been thinking a lot about is that if I understand these protocols because I read the actual papers as well, then it's naturally to become an investor. And one of the things that actually do come up is that you actually get quicker returns, not just in terms of the exit of the token, because tokens you can do DeFi, but also in the NFTs that will allow you to gain multiples. I think there's something that people don't understand about the crypto piece of it. Yeah, that. I think that's right. I think, I think public liquid tokens and NFTs tend to scare a lot of investors who aren't in this space and even investors in this space because the volatility is extremely high. And it's very scary to see your portfolio swing that much day to day. And I understand that having private investments where there's no mark to market is, is much more comfortable, but alpha is generated and in, in, in where there is uncomfort or discomfort. And I think for that reason, there aren't that many people doing actively active liquid strategies. And, and that's why it's, it's really interesting to go purposefully do that. I do this since 2014. I always made this comment. The cryptocurrency market is a vote, voting machine in the short run, but a weighing machine in the long run. So That's we're right. going to come to the main subject of the day, which is about the crypto meltdown with Terra, UST, Luna. And then, of course, that goes to Celsius and also Three Arrows Capital. What's, what's really interesting is that the Terra, UST, Luna project is in South Korea or Singapore, where they are based in. And Three Arrows Capital is also based in Singapore yeah. as well. So this is probably a very, very interesting time for Asia Pacific because they, they do fund a lot of the local is ecosystem players as well. They actually became global as such. So I think the, to start this conversation, because given that a lot of my audience is actually Web2 
tech executives or regional executives, I wanted to set up the fundamentals for my audience to understand before we dive into this recent crypto meltdown. So first of all, maybe just a bit of understanding and, the, and your hedge fund experience is going to be very useful here. Can you share what crypto hedge funds like Three Arrows Capital and I think the more famous one is Alamada Research, I think set up by Sam Bankman-Fried, also the co-founder of FTX. And how do they deploy their capital to trade? And what kind of exchanges do they typically deploy their capital? And also about, there's this thing term called the AUM, Manage Under Capital. So this is probably going to be a somewhat unsatisfying answer to start, but hedge fund strategies are very opaque in nature. What anyone can know for certain is limited, although these two are very well-known funds. And so I think there's a decent amount of, of information out there as you talk to brokers in the space and other traders in the space. Maybe starting with Alameda well, and Three Arrows Capital or 3AC, due to their size, both of them engage in a variety of strategies that includes high-frequency trading, market-making, yield farming, directional liquid token investments, as well as private investments. So they do all of the above. Both of them, because of their size, they trade on all venues. So this includes centralized exchanges like a Binance or a Coinbase or an FTX, but also decentralized exchanges in DeFi, such as Uniswap or DYDX, and also through over-the-counter market makers, such as a Genesis or a Falcon X or a Cumberland or an Amber. Focusing on Alameda specifically, Alameda Research is a quant trading firm. They were founded in 2017, and it really made its name first doing cross-exchange arbitrage when there was a huge disconnect between higher Asian Bitcoin prices, in particular in Japan and Korea due to capital controls, and lower US spot prices. So they basically just bought Bitcoin in the US and then sold it in Asia and then shipped the money back to the US so they could do the trade again. This was all done with proprietary capital. And so their asset size today is unknown because it's private, but they are known to trade about 5 billion of daily average trading volume, which is close to 5% of global trading volume in crypto. So they are a massive player in this space. Three Arrows Capital on the other hand, found a little earlier in 2012 by Suzu and Kyle Davies. They're both traders and they were much more aggressive with directional bets than in the more classic high-frequency market maker style like in Alameda. So 3AC has been known to raise outside capital as well, including from crypto protocol treasuries for which they invest on their behalf. I think at peak, it was believed that they were around 10 billion of assets levered and 3 billion unlevered prior to the Luna crash. Mm. And, and this is pretty interesting. So these funds actually borrow from lending institutions, for example, Genesis, mm -hmm. BlockFi, Celsius. Can you explain how they provide loans and guarantee use for the hedge funds to trade. Yeah, I think the, the tricky word there is guarantee because as we've yeah. seen, it, it's certainly not guaranteed. <laughs> but what, what these institutions have been classified or categorized now as CDFI, which means centralized, decentralized finance institutions. Essentially what uh, BlockFi and Celsius do is they take deposits from retail customers and then they use those deposits and deploy them into DeFi or decentralized finance protocols themselves, or they lend it out to other industry participants, such as a Three Arrows Capital or an Alameda, who can then use that capital to generate even higher yield. So at BlackFi or Celsius, you're getting 8% on your USDC or your US dollars. They are taking that, they're paying you that 8%, but then they are taking that money and either putting it in DeFi into something like an Inker protocol for 19 and collecting that 11% spread, or giving it to Alameda and Three Arrows Capital who are doing whatever 
highly sophisticated strategies they're doing and paying back a certain amount to uh, to Celsius to then pay back to the customers. So where do these higher yields come from? I think that's the natural question. And market makers and high-frequency trading firms often earn well above double-digit return on assets. Even in traditional finance, that's possible. So in crypto, where spreads are extremely wide, uh, they, they are earning incredible returns on capital. And so they're often very capital constrained. Within DeFi, uh, prior to the recent downturn, there are many yield generation opportunities that could offer yields stretching into the 100% plus range. These were unsustainable and required a lot of token emissions, but they existed. And so if you were sophisticated and knew where to find them, you could generate very high yields as long as you had, as long as you had assets to invest. The dirty secret, though, is that these, all these CDFI institutions are unregulated and marketed, unfortunately marketed as safe platforms for consumers. And going to that word guarantee, in reality, none of these deposits are insured or custodied or guaranteed. And we're now finding out that the, the result of that, when these assets have gone bad or when their investments have gone bad, that customers are no longer able to get their funds back. So I think this is interesting now. Now that we just established the relationship between the lending institutions and the hedge funds, I'm going to come to the crypto and the blockchain side of the thing. I think the first thing I probably we want to define is, and I'm actually anti-algorithmic stablecoin, which I'm very happy because I'm the only one who was the Cassandra for this last couple of months. <laughs> and I'm just going out now to buy ETH and Bitcoin at, at, at the lowest price possible. But First of all, can you define what an algorithmic stablecoin like the UST and how do they collateralize to maintain the pack? Yeah, I think first let's establish what a stablecoin is. So the goal of a stablecoin is essentially to match one-to-one with a fiat currency, which in crypto is primarily US dollars. So the reason this is useful is because it then becomes a stable unit of account so that you can bridge to the real world or just keep track of how much money you have. Now, for algorithmic stablecoins, this basically means they aren't issued by a centralized institution like a USDT Tether or Circle's US, uh, USDC. There are a few t- different types of algorithmic stablecoins. There's over-collateralized algorithmic stablecoins. This would be like the MakerDAO's DAI, where you deposit, let's call it $1.50 of collateral like ETH, and you receive back $1 of DAI. And so the, the bank or MakerDAO always has more collateral than what they're giving you back. In that case, they're over-collateralized. This is quite safe. On the other side, or on the very other opposite end, is under-collateralized or uncollateralized algorithmic stablecoins. And that would be something like a UST, uh, which was issued by the Terra ecosystem. In that case, there's no actual collateral backing other than other assets within the system. And so in that sense, it's kind of reflexive and it's not collateralized by US dollars at all. There's also a middle ground, actually, for fractionally collateralized stablecoins, which includes FRAX, but that's a much more complicated discussion, and that sort of sits in a middle ground between over and under collateralized. So now talking about UST, the Terra ecosystem had two coins. One is UST stablecoin, which was pegged to the US dollar, and then they also had a free-floating token called the Luna. Luna is essentially, in some sense, an equity ownership over the economics of the system. So how the two coins linked together was that at any time, you could always trade $1 worth of Luna for $1 worth of UST and vice versa. So when you swap in a dollar of Luna into the Terra machine, it gets burned much like a stock buyback. It disappears from the system. 
and you get in return you get back one dollar of UST. Similarly, when you swap in one dollar of UST into the into the machine, you what if that dollar of UST disappears and a dollar of Luna is given back to you, much like a stock issuance. As a result, the the reason why this works or why this works in theory is that whenever UST dropped below a dollar to say ninety cents, you could always swap it for a dollar of Luna and then quickly sell that Luna to make ten cents of arbitrage. And the the reverse would be true too. If if well, whenever you wanted to mint UST, you could always do that, and you could mint more UST if it ever went above the peg using just a dollar of Luna. So in theory, arbitragers would always keep the peg in place, so long as they thought they could sell that Luna for a dollar of Luna. The bigger Luna's market cap got, the more collateral backing there was for UST redemptions, and the more quote unquote safe the system becomes. At peak, Luna was actually forty billion dollars of market cap, and it backed about twenty billion of UST. So, in theory, over collateralized, but by this by this unstable collateral, which is Luna,、hmm. which which is interesting because I think per capital, I think the founder made a very good point about that. Actually, the more over collateralized, they're actually getting more and more insolvent because they're getting too big as、mm-hmm. a result, and then and they're also engineered that that's why. But we'll get to that a little bit. I think the last piece I want to sort of help everyone to put the puzzle together is: Can you talk about how layer one chains or even layer two chains, for example, the Eve, Solana, the Avalanche, Neo, and Terra, how do they intersect with these DeFi protocols that we know, decentralized finance protocols, for example, Aave and Compound for Lending? You have the MakerDAOs, all the different, even Curve as well, to generate this use and provide the lending. So there are a few different types of, of yield in, in DeFi, and I think like the main ones that are most relevant to this discussion are first on the layer one side. So the protocols you mentioned, the yield actually comes from token issuance given to validators. So validators, for those who aren't super close to blockchain, are essentially token holders who stake or lock up their tokens with the protocol for the right to validate and secure the blockchain. Serving that function allows them to get paid with yield, which is in the in in denominated in that token. So, if you're an ETH validator, you get paid in ETH. Yield, however, is sort of misleading here because if, effectively what's happening is Ethereum is issuing new tokens to you, so it's kind of distributing new stock and diluting all the other participants who are not validating. So the yield you get, a lot of people argue whether that's true yield or whether that's actually just anti-dilutive yield. Both are true. On the other side, stepping down into the ecosystem, into the application layer or decentralized applications, DApps that are built on top of these protocols, a lot of them offer lending and borrowing options. So one of them, for example, what we talked about earlier is MakerDAO, where they take over collateralized, they take in these deposits of ETH or Bitcoin, they issue out Dai, which which is a stablecoin, which you're then allowed to go and do whatever you want in the system. But with that treasury of of ETH and Bitcoin, they can lend it out to others who are other market makers who want might want to borrow ETH or borrow Bitcoin or borrow Dai to generate more yield or or make more trades within the ecosystem. And so, essentially, where that yield comes from then is someone believes they can take your Ethereum and make five percent on it, and so they're willing to pay you one percent into the MakerDAO treasury. That makes a lot of sense. On the other side. That all is what I would call standard borrowing and lending, and that's very similar to banks in the real world. On the other end of the spectrum are the more what what they call degen or degenerate applications, where 
they are offering very high yields for you to stake or, or to, to lock up tokens with them. But where that yield comes from is entirely from token emissions. So let's say, much like Ethereum is giving out token emissions, but for in, in the case of something like a more aggressive protocol, they might be giving out 100% yields or 200% yields denominated in their own token, which you have to then go and sell in order to actually generate that yield. So, so there's a pretty broad spectrum of how you generate yields. Some are more safe and some are less safe. And this token emissions in some sense is actually also creating inflation for the token itself and and partly is also to drive usage on the network as well. Because I think that is also one of the, the early parts of trying to pull people into it to use those tokens. That's right. So I think the, the, the last question is pretty interesting and we really get into the whole big story is why are the interest for the use as we have seen for Terra is around like 19.5% with the Anchor protocol, which is a DeFi protocol that generates that use for that. Yeah, absolutely. And the short story here is exactly what you just said, which is you should think of that 19.5% interest rate as a growth bootstrapping mechanism. It was an incentive to attract users to onboard onto the Terra ecosystem in hopes that those users would then stay and use the other applications that were being built in Terra outside of Anchor Protocol. This is just like a startup like Uber giving out free vouchers to attract new users. This is normal tech growth hack strategy. That said, where did the money come from? The money came from the treasury. So there was Terra, the foundation, or the Luna Foundation Guard and Terra Protocol was essentially using their Luna tokens, selling that to fund the Anchor Protocol's 19.5% interest rate. This, At some point, this becomes unsustainable. Anyone who understood the protocol knew this was un- not sustainable. The core team admitted as much publicly, which is why there were actually proposals to gradually lower the interest rate over time. And Actually, the week before UST fell, they'd already started to lower the interest rate to 18% and would have ratcheted down every week until it got to a more sustainable level. But the 19.5%, think of it as VCs funding Uber in order to get users to use Uber. And that's exactly what it was with Terra. Mm. So one month before the pegging, the founders of Terra, I think Do Kwan, who is probably well known, used the Lunar Foundation Guard to actually make a big purchase of Bitcoin. I think the first question I'm going to start off is what was the purpose of that purchase? Yeah, I think one linking point to make and dovetailing off what we just called is, uh, said is that because the 19.5% interest rate on Anchor was just so astronomically high, the tension on Anchor crowded out any meaningful interest for anything else in the tarot ecosystem. So the, the hopes of building a sustainable protocol where people were using Terra to do things other than invest in Anchor was not playing out. And so at some point, the core team realized that demand for Anchor had gotten out of hand. It was filled with quote unquote hot money, which is mercenary capital that quickly come in and out. And so in order to build more robustness into the system, they felt like it was necessary to add more collateral that wasn't just Luna. And that is why they decided to go out and buy Bitcoin in the hopes that the next time or whenever whenever the UST deep started to get off peg, they could also use Bitcoin and not just rely only on Luna to, to keep the peg stable. This in itself was an admission that the original system built by Luna was too fragile. And the core, the core team was essentially coming out and admitting that by buying Bitcoin. And part of the thesis is also that Bitcoin serves as an inflation hedge. I think this is like a common misconception 
to how people think about mm. Bitcoin in the market. I, I think Bitcoin actually behaves more like a stock, actually. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. Just to expound on that, part of the misunderstanding is that Bitcoin is perceived to be, and it is, less volatile than other crypto assets. And so as a result, they believe that by holding Bitcoin, Bitcoin retain its value even if Luna went up and down. Obviously, that has not turned out to be the case. The correlations between all these assets is quite high, although the betas are different. But yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That was the fallacy in that logic. Mm. So what are the circumstances that led to the UST being depacked and then subsequently engineer the death spiral for Luna and Terra? As we talked about, the stability or the peg of the UST stablecoin is dependent on arbitragers' confidence that they can always redeem that UST for a dollar of Luna, which then they could sell in the open market for a dollar. The trick or the fragility here in the system is that as more UST gets minted and Luna gets taken out of circulation, Luna's price naturally gets pushed up, but the reverse is also true. So every time you want to redeem a dollar of UST for Luna, that results in Luna issuance, which pushes down the price of Luna. And so as if UST goes to 90 cents and you swap it for Luna, you go out and sell Luna, Luna's price is going to go down. And so every time you swap a dollar of UST, Luna's market cap goes down by more than a dollar. So nothing particularly nefarious has happened. I think there have been a lot of deep dives into on-chain analysis into where exactly caused the death spiral. It just so happens that there were a lot of a, a series of unfortunate events that none of them nefarious that just highlights how fragile the system was to begin with. So backing up to one week before the DPEG happened, Anchor's protocol yield, like I had mentioned, had reduced to 18%. So still extremely high, but any sophisticated participant that may have been running a very levered strategy had to start reconsidering the risk reward and maybe you start reallocating some of that capital outside of the Terra ecosystem. Then during that week, crypto and the capital markets broadly, like the S&P and NASDAQ, had massive down week. It caused the Luna token price to drop around 20%, which reduced that collateralization rate. There was still $20 billion of UST out there, but now there was only, call it, 30-something billion of Luna versus $40 billion just a week before. Then one of the major market makers ensuring the UST peg is the curve pool. So for this pool to be healthy, there needs to be an even amount of UST, USDC, USDT, and DAI, which are all different types of stable coins. Temporarily, the Terra team, so the team itself had moved a large amount of that liquidity in that market-making pool outside in anticipation of migrating to another market-making pool. Again, nothing nefarious here. They were just doing the, their well-stated strategy that they were migrating liquidity from somewhere to another. However, this did make the pool more imbalanced and a lot less liquid. At the same time, a relatively inactive account, which is now believed also to belong to Terra, made a very large transaction that imbalanced the pool further. So the liquidity that was there ensuring the peg started drying up. Soon, other, some large and some, some normal transactions then followed where people were withdrawing USDC and imbalancing the pool in favor of a larger UST concentration. And that started to break the peg. And from there, it was really off to the races. I think the third major factor that, that played into this is this all happened or the depegging started on a late Saturday night, Eastern time, right when global liquidity is at its weekly low. And so I, I personally was at a good friend's wedding. And when I started seeing Luna unpeg like at midnight and I realized that's when I realized the trade was over. I'm sure many others, many of the large capital allocators in the crypto system were clearly sound asleep and unable to react. 
And then, and then there was also a couple of things. I think Masari was also talking about there was people putting shots on BTC. I think there was a pretty good analysis, which I will put into the show notes, was the jump cryptos analysis on some of the events that happened, which I think you also brought up, which I think if the interested reader can go and dig up more. But I thought, the what is the immediate impact of the UST de-pegging? So when Luna fell to near zero, I, how did the Terra team by led by Doquan try to mitigate death spiral? This was essentially a bank run. And the best thing you can do to stop a bank run is to remain calm and exude a sense of stability to slow it, which is exactly what Doquan and the Terra team tried to do. The magnitude of the bank run here was just way too big. The Terra team did their best to deploy capital to defend the peg, which included selling the Bitcoin that they had or deploying the Bitcoin to a market maker to sell on their behalf, but they quickly ran out of juice. And so they, to some extent, you could argue that they went radio silent. In reality, I believe it's very complicated because I'm sure they're working nonstop behind the scenes to try to save the system, but ultimately they couldn't. They've now actually relaunched Luna as Luna 2.0 without the UST stablecoin in hopes of salvaging what they could of developer and user goodwill to rebuild the Terra ecosystem, given that they did attract a lot of developers. And I think a lot of people also throw the coins off once they got it in the Terra right. 2 as well. So I think that particular project, I think is still ways to go. But I think where I'm going to start thinking about is the trigger of this Lunar Terror thing, and it starts to create a contagion. The first part, I'm going to start off by asking, which institutions were burnt by this Terra Lunar USD collapse? And how does this trigger a contagion that's now happening across the entire crypto market? Maybe it's important to highlight how large Terra and Luna had got. So Terra and Luna together were close to $60 billion in market cap at the, at the peak. So call it 3 to 4% of the total crypto's ecosystem. And Terra or Luna was a top five cryptocurrency. So very impactful. Almost every single major fund had positions in Terra Luna, including many well-known funds that publicly claimed they did not after the event to CYA. Most of them did, even though they said they did not. It's believed that Three Arrows Capital themselves lost $200 million on Luna. It's very public that large other large firms, which I won't name, I lost built close to a billion or more than a billion dollars on the Luna on the Luna debacle. So due to the high amount of leverage in the crypto ecosystem and the widespread ownership of Luna by crypto funds, that's what resulted in continuing contagion. When your portfolio is down, you're going to rebalance or you need to reduce leverage. So crypto assets were just sold across the board as market participants risk manage their portfolio, whether that's deleveraging to cover margin calls, or just increasing cash positions to be more risk off. And so since that collapse, I mean, Bitcoin is down 50%, ETH is down 60%. Most altcoins are down 70 to 90% since that event. And part of that, what happens as a result of people selling is that your the demand for liquidity or the cost of liquidity has increased dramatically. And so that's resulted in widening discounts between liquid and illiquid pairs. This is best evidenced if you look at STETH, which is a liquid form of staked ETH, and GBTC, which is a closed-ended fund carrying BTC, and their discounts to what should be fair value. Those two have been highly popular trades amongst, uh, amongst hedge funds. So STETH, like I said, is liquid staked ETH. It's provided by this protocol called Lido. In theory, it's exchangeable one-to-one -one for Ethereum when Ethereum 2.0 withdrawals are enabled, which is expected, call it six to nine months after the merge. The merge is expected, call it in September. So 
Maybe by June next year, we can swap our SD for ETH one-to-one, no problem. The problem is that that is nine months away. And so, or 12 months away as of a few months ago. And so as, even though historically it's held that one-to-one peg, as demand for liquidity increased, people began selling their ST ETH, which resulted in it depegging from ETH to it going to as low as 95 cents on the dollar. Many, many fund participants, many people in DeFi had actually chosen to lever up their ST ETH positions and short ETH as collateral. So what happens when ETH goes down is that you have to repay those loans in ETH. You have to sell ST ETH to fund that. And so as you unwind the positions, it only makes it much worse. It's very similar for a GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It's a closed-ended fund, which cannot be redeemed for BTC, which is very unfortunate. But effectively, that means you can only put money in, but you can't take money out. So it trades at a 30% discount, whereas in theory, it should only trade at a modest discount because essentially everything there is just Bitcoin. If Bitcoin plus a large-ish management fee. Arbitragers believe that a GBTC will eventually get approved by an ETF. Side note, yesterday, the SEC, again, for the second time, said that they would not approve this ETF. But the impact of that would be, if it was approved as an ETF, it would allow for redemptions and thus this and thus you can take money out. And so this 30% discount should go to zero or close to zero. Again, many funds did this trade with leverage. So in other words, they they shorted BTC in order to fund their long GBTC trade. And so when Bitcoin sold off, they, they had to unwind these positions, again, making the discount even worse. And then this contagion started to spread to Celsius. I think it's the first and it got insolvent. And then a few others who start limit withdrawals. I think Babel Finance in Hong Kong, FinBlogs, and a lot of others in play. I think the way you explain has actually explained how the contagion actually started to spreading. But then the other question that I, I thought would be very interesting to ask is what does insolvency actually means for a lender, for example, Celsius and BlockFi? Yeah, so insolvency essentially just means you're unable to pay back your loans or, or your liabilities. So and what happened in these cases, so we talked about earlier how Celsius and BlockFi took in retail deposits and then used that to lend out or invest in other assets or other protocols to generate yield. So what happened is it's explicitly in this case is they took customer funds, put them in risky trades such as UST, such as GBTC, such as STE, such as Three Arrows Capital, lost money on those trades. And so now they owe customers $1,000, but... The thousand dollars that they used to have is now only worth five hundred, and so they're unable to meet customer withdrawal demands because that money no longer exists. Right? They lost it. So let's go through. There's a long list of many institutions that are now allegedly insolvent. Right? We don't know for sure, but the first was Celsius, which is a retail lending platform that had twelve billion of assets under custody right before the Luna collapse. They froze all customer withdrawals and have now hired bankruptcy advisors. A week later, which is about two weeks ago now. 3AC or Three Arrows Capital, which was said to manage, again, a $10 billion portfolio, you, st- you start to see that their positions on chain, which are all your positions on chain are fully trackable and transparent. You start them see to be liquidated. So off-chain lenders then started reporting that the 3AC team had stopped responding to them when they asked for margin calls. And then just yesterday, the BVI court or the British Virgin Islands court where 3AC Capital is now based or domiciled, ordered them to liquidate yesterday. 
Many other retail-facing institutions like Babel Finance, CoinFlex, Finblox, Voyager, they all followed. And similarly, they likely lost money on their investments and are now unable to satisfy customer withdrawals. I think when we take from the lender and then started to spread, and then we go back in full circle when we started to talk about the hedge fund. So this in the process takes out Three Arrows Capital led by Suzu and Carl Davis, and they are quite smart people. So I think one interesting thing that came out with the follow-up, I have been tracking a lot of what Ryan Salkis from Masari did in a couple of Twitter spaces. I think there were a few things that he pointed out was quite interesting. Where it gone wrong for Three Arrows Capital, the first thing that happened is very similar to, uh, I don't know, you and I would probably know the whole history of long-term capital management who were trading volatility in the 1997 and it blew up on everyone's face. There were two Nobel Prize winners actually involved as well who invented the Black Shows model. So what he pointed out was Three Arrows already got burned from the GBTC trade. And then it followed by the Terra Lunar USD collapse. And then the stick if and if thing. They basically got margin caught in that process. So how do we think about how the entire thing just unravel so quickly, like within like just two, three weeks, and then they are being margin caught by everyone at the same place? Yeah. I think this goes back to two things, which is that there's a ton of leverage in the crypto ecosystem. And then two is that there is a lot of cross-borrowing, cross-lending by these large institutions. And to your point, really, all these institutions suffered from same of the same balance sheet problems that the famed hedge fund LTCM made in the late 90s, which is short-dated liabilities and long-dated assets, right? And so their, their liabilities were stuff like, were customer deposits, and then their assets were stuff like STE or GPTC that you're unable to withdraw. So you can't, you can't pay back your liabilities. When liquidity dries up, the asset liability mismatch gets worse and things get worse. With Three Arrows, relating this back to the specific players in the space, it was clear that a lot of the retail trading platforms like a Celsius, like a Babel, they had offered, they had given loans to, to institutions like 3AC who had promised even higher yields. And so the goal for all these institutions was to generate a spread on customer deposits versus, versus their investments. And 3AC was out there telling them they could do that. Unfortunately, when 3AC's trade started to unravel, they were unable to pay back these loans when they were margin called. And if they're unable to pay back these loans, in turn, Celsius is no longer able to pay back their customers. And so that's what causes its contagion or continued impact. It's important to note that the fallout will likely continue to play out over the coming months, right? Losses will continue to be absorbed by equity players or equity holders and lenders alike as liabilities from these now defunct borrowers get worked out. It just takes time for large institutions to work out their their losses in in a bankruptcy court or in just a negotiated sort of workout situation. I think the silver lining, just like the LTCM situation, I think Goldman Sachs came in and built them out for for the LTCM trade. So in the same scenario, we have Sam Bamman Free SBF from FTX came in and built out BlockFi and Voyager, correct? But then now also we also heard from Coindesk that the investors like Anthony Popliano, who's very well known for the Palm podcast, is now putting a counter bid for BlockFi because the investors are being burned in that process. I think with the contagion is going on, there's going to be a lot of distressed assets at play. What are the implications moving forward? I think there's no doubt that there will be consolidation and separation of more sustainable business models and winners versus losers who had less sustainable business models. So much like during the LTCM or even during the 2008 financial crisis, 
Some businesses were deemed to be worth saving, like Bear Stearns, and some were deemed to be unsalvageable due to their financial condition, like Lehman Brothers. And so these are all huge businesses. It's no surprise that many large institutions like FTX or Goldman are looking at the pieces and asking, which pieces do I want to keep and which do I want to salvage? FTX is clearly a very financially motivated buyer, but they're also a strategic actor. There are huge positive externalities to providing rescue financing to others in the industry. FTX has no interest in seeing the industry go down, so they want to save it as much as they can. And SBF or Sam Bankman-Fried has said as much publicly, directly. He's not trying to necessarily make money on each of these investments. He's trying to prop up the industry because the benefit to FTX way outweighs the cost of whatever it takes to salvage BlockFi. And the surprise point on, on that is that Binance and Coinbase have not moved a single inch even at this point in time. That is a good point. I mean, Coinbase is going through a lot of issues in terms of, I think Coinbase is very solvent and they don't have liquidity issues, but they clearly are going through a lot of organizational issues. Whereas someone maybe who is in a better financial position and has more cash on the balance sheet is better able to play offense in times like this. Yeah, absolutely. We planned for the podcast, I think two weeks back and then so many news happened even up to this morning. I think we, you and I right. were like writing on on our Telegram channel and say, this week we have Genesis now suffered from the 3AC contagion and apparently it's a nine-digit figure and then it was reported by Coindesk which happens to be owned by the same entity right. that owns Genesis. So, and then, then you have 3AC got reprimanded by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. They actually came in and really hammered them to the nail. So they're going to get some form of regulatory blowback at some point here. But it all seems to come back to this first GBTC trade, which they started to have problems with. It so coincided, and I think we talked about it earlier, that you know SEC just rejected Grayscale to turn GBTC into a spot ETF. Where is it going to go for the general crypto market? Because the GBTC cannot be turned into ETF, so the redemptions cannot happen. What does it mean for the crypto market as a whole? I do think the GBTC issues is, is probably limited in impact now. There are clearly a few large holders, such as Three Arrows Capital, but that's that's being liquidated as we speak or, or going to soon be liquidated. And so that's potentially not too big of an issue. Um, Genesis is known to hold a lot of GPTC, but that might be on behalf of other institutions. It may not be their own. And so that presumably will, will work itself out. We don't know if there are margin loans backing behind that. But I do think that luckily the GPTC in size is not that large anymore and a lot of the leverage is being worked out. So it, it can only be, I think there are lots of debates about whether that turning into a spot ETF is good or not. It, it, it turning into a spot ETF will certainly increase access for retail users to Bitcoin, but most retail users know how to access Bitcoin already. They don't need this ETF. I, I think what ends up happening is it just, it brings in a lot of arbitragers who will then close the gap, but in order to close the gap, you have to buy GPTC and you have to sell BTC. So it could actually cause a little bit of, when the ETF gets approved, if it ever does get approved, it could cause a little actually a bit of a, a mixed reaction and potentially negative, a short-term reaction. Uh, and But overall, it shouldn't have too big of an impact going forward. Cosmo, uh, I think this is a pretty interesting thing. And the thing about crypto market is always highly speculative. I think BTC is currently at about 19 to 21K. It's probably about 70 to 73% against its all-time high or ATH. And Ethereum is about maybe somewhere approximately 75%, or maybe 77% against the all-time high as well. I think there's this question that I always ask myself, 
what are the sort of likely extinction events that will eventually destroy the market? So for me, I always think about Tether being depacked or Binance mm. go on a bank run. These are like these are extinction level events that will happen. But what what would, what are your thoughts on that? Wow, those are pretty wild. I agree that those are certainly risks. And I, I really appreciate the, the 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 basis of the question. I think part of my investment process is always doing pre-mortem exercises, which is essentially before something happens, what would cause it to die? What could go wrong? And that's very integral to my investment process. So uh, I do think a total or near extinction event is unlikely, but there are a few salient bear cases today. One is certainly the USDT unpegging, or if that happens, that would be disastrous because it's such a large asset. I think there are lots of reasons to believe that, that that's actually not that big a risk. A lot of people in the crypto space do not believe that. Number two, and this is a fundamental problem with crypto, and I think a very good bear case, which is that crypto is an extremely reflexive asset class today. What does that mean? That means price helps price on the way up and price kills price on the way down. The reason for that is that all the businesses in crypto are tied primarily to trading and speculation of crypto rather than any productive use cases. So there are some businesses that generate real cash flow, and those are the ones that I focus on. But even those largely generate revenue from other crypto businesses. So until crypto has more ties to real world productive use cases and has more dollar generation tied to real world activity, it will continue to have this highly internally reflexive nature. As crypto trading goes up, there's more revenue in the system. As crypto trading goes down, there's less revenue in the system. And that's not sustainable. It's very circular. It's almost like crypto just has this constant cycles of up and down. And I think being through what probably I went through two bear markets and I thought about it again. And these things just constantly happen. My anti-algorithmic stablecoin point of view. I mean, if you think about it, it's a little bit like a fiat dollar. But the difference between a fiat dollar and an algorithmic stablecoin is that the fiat dollar actually have a real economy. You have GDPs, you have people actually building buildings, mm-hmm. repairing roads, you have supermarkets, mm-hmm. but then your crypto algorithmic stablecoin, that doesn't exist. But I mean, I'm willing to someday revise this judgment if, say, a metaverse happens when people decided that they decided to want to spend their lives inside the digital world, trading NFTs and NFT creates real value. Then I think... Is the economical value. Where is your line of thinking on that? I think that's exactly right. I want to make it very clear that I'm very optimistic that crypto as an industry can start to build these productive real-world use cases that are tied to real-world assets, real-world productivity. I'm very bullish on the idea that Web3 concepts and, and blockchain as technology will be disruptive to our everyday activities, and so therefore it will be linked. How should a retail investor like myself or even an institutional investor navigate this crypto down market or maybe even pending crypto winter? I, because we still don't know where the, when the contagion is going to end anyway. I think a few things. First, you really have to take a view on the overall macro. Uh, I remain pretty cautious over the next three to six months and reserve my view for thereafter. I think the current macro backdrop is clearly continues to be weak. Monetary conditions across the globe are tightening as governments across the world including the US, UK, Australia, India, Japan, increase rates to combat inflation, right? It's not a US only problem. It's not an Asia, Europe only problem. The same concerns from earlier this year continue to play out, which includes inflation, supply chain disruption, COVID flare-ups, war, lower growth expectations. So kind of bearish macro outlook. Second, you have to take a view on crypto as an asset class. And 
I'm very bullish on crypto as an asset class longer term. Why do I think that's the case? User and developer adoption trend lines are undeniably going up in one direction. One salient insight I have here is that employment is much stickier than asset prices. There are so many developers over the last three, six, nine months who have just recently switched over to Web3 jobs. And they had to quit their prior, probably cushy jobs at Facebook or Amazon to do that and convince all their friends and family that they're not crazy. They are not going to just suddenly switch back to their prior jobs after going through that hurdle. And then you have to think about time horizon. So marrying that maybe bearish near-term view, but very bullish long-term view, history shows that most investors are incapable of timing the bottom. I'd recommend most people, especially retail traders, to be long-term investors and not short-term traders. On that point, I think it's prudent to slowly begin deploying available capital into the space if your time horizon is, call it, a year plus. At this point, I do believe we're a lot closer to the bottom than the top. So if your time horizon is long enough, you should be fine. And I'm personally very excited for the potential performance opportunity from here for Nova River Capital and for any other new entrants into the space. So a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. That's exactly right. Cosmo, many thanks for coming on the show. And, and this is really a very good discussion because I think we really crystallized the whole contagion and how this is happening and how we should be looking at the crypto markets as a whole moving forward to the future, just as bullish as you do from my end. In closing, I have two very quick questions. So the first one is any recommendations which have inspired you recently? Yeah, I'd say one book I've read recently is called Range by David Epstein. It's a, it talks about how helpful it is to have a diverse set of knowledge and experiences to pull from, with the ultimate thesis really being that generalists triumph in a specialized world. It's really primarily a book about parenting, but the lessons are hugely applicable to business and investing broadly. And then maybe my second recommendation is, I, I think it's really important to find ways to disconnect and, and from electronics and reconnect with the world around you. So I personally recently moved to California and picked up surfing as an occasional hobby. I'm by no means good, but I found that just being out on the water is an incredible experience. You're completely in the moment. You don't have your phone to distract you. You aren't, if you aren't paying attention, you might be caught by a wave. So there's a tiny sense of danger that forces you to be alert and present. And it's just incredibly relaxing to be on your board, out there on the ocean, rocking to the natural rhythm of the waves. That's a good recommendation for everyone now to just go and chill out. So how can my audience find you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, after getting your regular dose of Analyze Asia, of course, uh, please f tune in to the Liquid podcast that's available on Apple and Spotify that I host. You can also find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you just search my name, Cosmo Jiang, you can find me. I don't, I don't use a pseudonymous crypto name please feel free to reach out. I love talking to and learning from new people and always grateful for new learnings. Many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, for everyone else out there, you can find us on any podcast platform. And I think I'm going to get you back on the show. I'm pretty sure the crypto market is not going to be so quiet for us that we won't have another conversation. So once again, thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again. That sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun, Bernard, and I look forward to being back. Run it, run it, run it.